Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where this week one editor and two lawyers, do not turn off the podcast, I promise it's going to be fun, two lawyers are going to take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by Yayoi Shionori, our senior counsel at Artsy. Hi, Isaac. How are you? I'm well. And Sergio Munoz Saramiento, a professor, artist, and lawyer, and founder of New York's Art and Law Program. Hi, Sergio. Hi. Thank you for having me. So this week, we're going to be talking about the Visual Artist Rights Act, or VARA for short. It's a law that has been in the headlines recently in relationship to the famous fearless girl charging bull dispute. And we'll get there. But before we get to the maybe the most recent prominent uh, example of, of VARA, Sergio, what is the Visual Artist Rights Act? What are the key things to kind of know about it? So the Visual Artist Rights Act, VARA, is a very interesting and also very controversial law that exists in the United States. Um, as a quick note, there are also some states in the United States that have a form of moral rights laws. And when I say moral rights laws, it's a law that's really meant to protect the moral aspect of an artist's creation, the spiritual aspect, the almost the erratic aspect of an artist's creation. And this law comes to the U.S. via uh, Europe, particularly France. And what this law does in the United States is it says to artists, look, we want to, A, incentivize you to make art so that you feel confident that when your artwork leaves your physical possession, you can have some comfort that the person or the entity that has your work won't do anything to your work um, that you don't like done to it. And secondly, it also gives the artist what's called a right of attribution. And what that says is that the artist has a right to say, I did make that artwork or I did not make that artwork. And conversely, if the work is modified or distorted uh, to some extent and it's found to have been distorted and modified, the artist has a right to say, again, that is no longer a work of art by me. And Yoyo, what are sort of the limitations and parameters of VARA? Because it's not as expansive as its European counterparts. Sure, I think that's totally right. Um, it's, it's really important to remember that VARA is applicable to works of visual art. Now, what does that mean? Under the U.S. Federal Copyright Act, that means paintings, drawings, prints, sculptures, still photographic images produced for exhibition, and there are also number limitations as well. These things have to exist either in single copies or in limited edition of 200 or fewer, and a lot of the times they often have to be signed and numbered as well. Some of the other things that I think we have to remember about the limitations to VARA, and Sergio, I love your views on this too, is that, for example, a work-for-hire type of art um, waives VARA. So VARA rights can never be applicable to something that is created for work for hire. And in fact, you as an artist might be asked to waive your VARA rights in writing. And what this means is that if you sign away a piece of paper that says, I waive my rights, that means that thereafter, the artist cannot claim that there are VARA rights to that piece of artwork. Mm. Whereas in Europe, I know the artist can't uh, sign away their That's bar rights. Right. One thing I think is interesting, which I which I really want to call out explicitly for the people who maybe aren't super familiar with the statute, is essentially it kind of hinges on this idea of a distortion, mutilation, or other modification of the work, which is prejudicial to his or 
her, in this case being the artist, uh, honor a reputation. And that's sort of what Vara is designed to allow artists to prevent, even if they no longer own the work or have other property rights. So how do uh, moral rights kind of differ from property rights or even the other economic rights like copyright that artists may have? So interestingly, uh, I like the fact that you brought up the, the concept of property because in the United States, moral rights really are thought to be a property right. Uh, whereas in Europe and other uh, countries, I believe Latin America um, and, and continents, it's really more a natural right. And I think this is it's key to, to express that philosophically because the United States really did not want uh, the Visual Artist Rights Act. Congress really fought hard against it. They were pretty much um, forced into into enacting VARA if the United States wanted to be a member of the Berne Convention in 1988. And so if you remember, at, at this time in the late 80s, it was a very controversial moment for artists uh, in terms of politically. And you know, artists were not exactly being favored uh, by Congress. And so I say that because I think, as uh, Yoyoi was mentioning earlier, the waiver exception, for example, or the work for hire, I think it's a way for Congress that, that Congress said, look, this is a pro-property country, and the U.S. is founded on property principles. How can we give some kind of protection to the property owner, right? Because if I purchase a laptop or I purchase a basketball, I can do pretty much whatever I'd like with it, right, within the, the bounds of the law. That changes when I buy a sculpture piece. It changes when I buy a painting, and the artist is alive. Why is that? And so, um, you know, if, if you think about it, it does pose problems from a property perspective, right? In, in that you are telling now the property owner, there are now some extra conditions, but only when it comes to this particular object mm -hmm. or this particular asset. Right. You know, the second incentive behind VARA and moral rights are that we believe that art is a special type of product that society gains something from. So it's not just the individual, the artist. The belief is that we want posterity. We want the, the work to exist uh, in the future untouched, unmodified, undistorted, and certainly not destroyed. Mm. I think Sergio is totally right. And I guess the other thing to also mention is that VAR rights only exist for the life of the artist. And that, I think, again, goes to sort of this congressional intent that they are trying in some ways to potentially limit the artist's overreach um, of rights over that piece of artwork. Yeah, and I, Sergio, I really liked how you sort of historically characterized the law because it's passed in 1990. I think it's just one year before as Richard Serra's Tilted Arc is destroyed. This work of public sculpture is essentially just destroyed pre-Vara. And I think that there's probably an argument to be made that, that that whole case would have taken a completely different route had Vara been enacted. But but to sort of give another example, we, we can fast forward in time to 2011 when Katie Noland, who, who's an artist whose work sells for, for millions of dollars, disavowed a work of art in 2011, before it appeared at a Sotheby's auction, um, it was called Cowboy Milking. She made it actually in 1990, and in inspecting the work prior to auction, she found that the corners of the aluminum had been manipulated or distorted to the extent that she no longer believed it was her work. What what happened then? 
<laughs> so what ends up happening is that Sotheby's ends up withdrawing the work from the auction. And then the consigner of the work, Mark Janku, I believe is who it was, um, who is the gallerist who, who had the work in his possession, sued both Sotheby's and the artist, arguing a breach of consignment contract for Sotheby's and also arguing that Katie Noland had actually tortiously interfered with what was happening. Sounds dramatic. Sounds dramatic. And I think it was pretty dramatic when it happened. And what ended up happening was it was determined that there was no breach by Sotheby's because Sotheby's in its consignment agreement had said it can withdraw the work at any time if there is doubt as to the authenticity or attribution of the work, given how Katie Nolan was claiming that she was disavowing her work, that there was enough doubt that this was in fact the case. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the, the, the case, from my understanding, sort of firmly established that an auction house can withdraw a work if there's doubt raised. What it didn't do is determine whether or not Katie Nolan was within her bar rights to disavow the work. What's the difference there between sort of the judicial determination and the economic determination made by Sotheby's? Right. Well, I think that uh, one of the things that we're seeing happen a lot now, not just in VARA cases, is the question between law and the market. What rights uh, does the artist have? But also, you know, does the market care? And there are commentators out there that will say, um, you know, the, the ultimate uh, decision will be made by the market. Uh, you know, even if, let's say, Katie Nolan had disavowed it and, and uh, a court of law had even said this is no longer a work by Katie Nolan, will a collector care? Uh, will a purchaser care? Um, my theory is that they won't. You know, there, you have collectors out that are, are willing to take that risk because, A, that work of art is now an unauthored, if, if we can say that, work of art that was once by Katie Nolan. Or there are collectors who will say it is a Katie Nolan. You know, it's not damaged. I, I fully agree with that because at the end of the day, also, VAR came into being in 1990. Now it's been several decades since the law has been put into place. There have been actually very few cases that have actually determined based upon the VAR rights that the artist is claiming. And so it really remains to be seen how an artist could potentially bring about and claim their VAR rights and the court actually holding a case based upon that person's rights. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned there hasn't been a ton of actual decided case law in this, even though it sort of seems like VARA comes up in the news fairly frequently. I mean, one instance where a VARA case is actually proceeding to trial is the Five Points case, where a judge ruled in early in this, this April, basically, that a case involving a number of graffiti artists whose work was on this uh, graffiti mecca in Queens called Five Points, which was demolished by the developer in 2014, can proceed in their lawsuit for monetary damages against the developer. It's an interesting case uh, because it's going to trial. Yoyoy, how, how does it sort of illustrate maybe the success and failures of VARA? Because the works were ultimately destroyed. I mean, they don't exist for posterity. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, and it kind of goes back a little bit to Sergio's point about sort of the United States law being based upon property rights, where we're now saying, hey, artists, your work has been in fact destroyed, but if you can 
claim that you have been damaged and you can quantify what those damages are, we are going to actually compensate you for it. So that in some sense, the law is attempting to provide a security blanket for the artists by compensating them for the damages that they have perceived and they can show. But then at the same time, their work is still gone. At the end of the day, their works are no longer able to be seen. The the mecca of graffiti that is Five Points is no longer there. Exactly. And I think what's interesting about a lot of Vara cases, Isaac, you mentioned how it's constantly in the news. Vara, uh, for better or for worse, is a very sexy law that uh, art lawyers love or lawyers in general love when they sort of do a little bit of research and they say, hey, this could be a Vara case. Let's stick to it. And many times I have to say Vara is not the best solution. And in fact, Congress mentioned this quite a bit uh, during their debates. Well, you know, we already have other forms of other laws that artists can um, uh, attach their claims to, breach of contract, tort. And so um, I say that because the, the five points case brings up something very interesting for me, which is, are we just applying the law because that's what the law says? Or, we, or do we fundamentally value graffiti to the extent that we say we want that for posterity? And I'm not a fan of saying when someone says it's art is art or because someone claims they're an artist that it's art. So then automatically we go to Vara. I think that that's something that, that we really should think about philosophically is, is that really what we want to be applying the law to? Yeah, and it's interesting because the judge in this case is is using another uh, point of Vara, which is that the work has to be of a recognized stature. And I think, in, in, I know in his ruling, he he sort of said, well, bring me a list of all the works and I'll decide if we can do one trial or there has to be like a different trial for each and every single one. And I, I don't mean to say that that I don't think five points is not art, not at all. I'm, when I'm, I'm questioning the the founding of the, of the law itself, the foundations of, of, of VARA itself. I think with a stature requirement, um, I believe that you can even have stature uh, uh, met, that requirement met during and after. In, in other words, the trial itself, the destruction of the artwork can itself become and meet the stature requirement. So I don't think five points is necessarily going to have a hard time meeting that that burden. But it is interesting also in that the judge originally said, well, I can't prevent the destruction. But before the before the building was destroyed, the judge said, well, I can't prevent the destruction of this building by the property owner. Like, I just don't have, I would have to qualify it as like a landmark or something that's just simply not granted to me under VARA. So it is, it is, once again, just always interesting to see kind of the tangible limitations of the goal of keeping art for posterity kind of butting up against, you know, developers. And, and, and their property in, ownership in and, and of Property itself. ownerships, yeah. And that kind of brings us to the most recent invocation of VARA. Uh, last week, the artist who created Wall Street's charging bull, Arturo Di Modica, held a press conference um, in which he said the recently... Uh, added fearless girl statue uh, violated his rights now for those people who maybe don't live in new york the fearless girl statue was added uh, on international women's day to kind of stare down demodica's famous wall street bull the fearless girl was created by an artist but was commissioned by a a financial company working with an advertising agency. Uh, it's been promoted on their website and was tied to a fund. Um, their gender diversity index. Their gender diversity and index. In fact, their symbol under NASDAQ is S-H-E, so she. I'm sure that's just an accident. 
Um, <laughs> and it, it, it immediately drew a ton of praise and then controversy over allegations of corporate feminism and, and other sort of criticisms, all leading into Demodica basically saying it changed his positive bull into a negative symbol um, and also that this company is pro uh, profiting off of his work without his permission. So one of the claims raised by his lawyer who didn't file, who hasn't filed a lawsuit yet, uh, are under VARA, um, basically saying that the manipulation um, part of the statute in this case applies to the message of the bull, which has been essentially changed in a way that's prejudicial to Demodica's reputation and honor. So it's the work that's launched a thousand hot takes, but it's actually kind of a complicated, nuanced legal question. Sergio, do you maybe want to tackle it first? What do you think about the validity of the VARA claims? Well, uh, staying on the on the VARA claims, you know, my initial reaction when I heard in passing, I think actually I read about it on, on a 140 characters of Twitter was to laugh and say this is absurd. But of course, the more one digs into the facts, um, my mind quickly began to change and, and to really think that Demodica does have legitimate claims both under copyright and, and VARA. Couple of questions that I, you know, have in order to get into the Vara answer is, you know, is this an artist versus an artist? And I think the public in general thinks of it, yes, it is, right? The sculptor of the fearless girl versus the sculptor of the bull. And then it quickly becomes politicized and it becomes uh, a question of ideology. But I would really slow down there and say, well, is the fearless girl uh, product really a creation by an artist? Like, who authored that? Because if it isn't an artist, then we have a very different approach, uh, at least for me, both legally and philosophically, as to whether or not there is a violation. And and you're saying that because of the corporate sort of advertising aspect of the work. Is it, is it an advertisement more than it is a work of art? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Now, in terms of the uh, VARA question that you pose, um, you know, uh, quite a few friends of mine who are art lawyers will say that there is no VARA violation. Um, but... I think, again, the first question I would ask is, what is the work? And uh, I don't necessarily want to immediately say that it's just the bull. You know, is it is the work also or does it also include the cobblestones? You know, how far of a radius does the bull and the cobblestone cover, right? Because the for those who haven't seen it, the location where Fearless Girl sits is on cobblestone that was added and, in fact, does physically touch the cobblestone where the bull actually sits, right? And so the best way to visualize that is if we think of something like Brancusi's Bird in Flight that has a small pedestal. Well, what would happen if I added my little pedestal onto Brancusi's and put something next to it, like an actual bird? You know, would that be a VAR violation, assuming Brancusi was still alive? Early 20th century, many artists uh, started to look at, especially sculptors, as the pedestal being part of the work. So, so for me, there's a there's an interesting question there. And by the way, this is this uh, fearless girl charging bull debate is a is a perfect law exam for an art <laughs> law student. <laughs> it's too bad I'm not teaching this semester. And I, and I think sort of Sergio was mentioning sort of there is always an opposing view, or sort of there 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 are many interpretations of what I agree is sort of an interesting case study, and and so the 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 oppositional view to what Sergio was saying was that moral rights under VARA they don't extend 
to how a work is displayed if there is no tangible alteration. Now, of course, then that goes back to Sergio's point of was there a tangible alteration because of the cobblestones? Potentially, yes or no. But I, I think some art lawyers and, and I think some art world people are, are quite um, interested in this case because the idea that a work of art that's placed in dialogue to another one, um, does that change the way both works are seen? And, and is that a, a grounds for a VARA claim? Because in fact, that is arguably, for example, what a curator might do in a museum. Um, and so there, I, th- I think the argument will be protection is, VARA protection is against the physical integrity of the work, but not necessarily the conceptual integrity. Right. And, and I know courts have historically, when they have uh, adjudicated on VARA, basically read the law quite conservatively to mean physical work. And I want to say one, a couple of things about uh, Yoyoi's um, interesting comments about, you know, posing these uh, sort of a chilling effect for curators. And I think a, a, a couple of things to remember. One is artists already do that, right? Artists uh, will will tell directors or curators, my work is too close to that work. My work is too close to the wall. It's too close to the door, uh, et cetera, to the fire sign, exit <laughs> sign. And and But, you know, the other thing is that, um, you know, what if I was invited to be in a group show where Donald Judd was going to be exhibiting one of his aluminum boxes? And as my work, I created an aluminum box very similar to Judd's or, or a riff on Judd's identical uh, in look and size and material. And I asked the curator to place it three feet, two feet, or one foot from the Judd. Um, would the quote-unquote reasonable observer, even if we had someone who was a PhD art student or art history student, would they necessarily know that that Judd is, is it one box or is it two boxes, right? And so what really makes this case complex is the fact that the fearless girl was created in relationship to, in dialogue with, uh, the charging bull. You know, material, size, intent, the look, the, the direction, um, the proximity. You're absolutely right. Courts have generally dealt with physical alterations, but nothing in very. If you read the statute, if you're a Scalian, uh, so to speak, uh, there's nothing in the statute, in the four corners, that says it has to be physical. I hope no one's a Scalian here, but <laughs> I won't hold it against you. Before I let you go, we're going to do our world famous. Uh, where in the art world are you going to be drinking white wine this week? Uh, so, Yoyoi, uh, what exhibitions uh, are on your uh, checklist? Well, I'd like to definitely go back to the Whitney Biennial, which is happening in New York at the moment. Um, I'm, in my view, it's sort of a great way to see what's both current and contemporary uh, in terms of artistic practice in the United States at the moment. And for those of us art law wonks, and for those of us who are worried that law cannot affect or cannot be a subject of artistic practice, there's a particular work in the Biennial by... Cameron Rowland, mm. and it's called Public Money. And what he's actually doing is he's displaying a series of contracts that document, in, in some ways, a social contract where the artist has caused the Whitney to make an investment in a social impact bond. So I'm, I'm excited to go back and sort of read those contracts on the wall. I think you'll be one of the few, the few people who actually can fully, you know, take it, take it all in. And Sergio, what's uh, on your to-see list? Well, actually, a couple of exhibitions. Uh, unfortunately, next Tuesday, I was going to attend the opening of the Louise Lawler 
exhibition at uh, MoMA. But uh, unfortunately and fortunately, I'm on my way to Madrid to uh, view an exhibition by the Brazilian artist Mario Pedrosa that was curated by a good friend of mine and, and the next Sao Paulo Biennale curator, uh, Gabriel Perez Barreiro. So that we'll be doing that next Thursday. So it'll be uh, red wine probably in Spain. That, that sounds more uh, fortunate than unfortunate if I had to be totally honest absolutely, with you. Absolutely, absolutely. And I will be going to see Making Space, uh, Women Artists in Post-War Abstraction at the MoMA, um, which kind of uh, surfaces uh, women artists from MoMA's collection through works that have been rarely seen or, or never seen um, from the ABEX movement to the late 1960s. Really excited for that. Abby wrote an interesting piece on that. If you haven't read it, check it out. Thanks so much to our guest, Yayoi. And thanks so much also to some of my friends in Japan, um, art lawyers at City Lights Law Office, um, with whom I sometimes get to work with. And they were instrumental in, in also letting me think about Fearless Girl and some of these other cases out there. A shout out to a totally different time zone. Awesome. And Sergio, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I want to thank you both for inviting me. See you next time. Our producer this week, editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Brooke for free.